Miracy. I think it's a powerful grounding to recognize that sometimes an argument or a debate is valuable for everyone, that it's worth going through the difficulty of those kinds of conversations to get to a deeper truth. Hello, I'm Katie Valentine, and you're listening to Soul Savvy Business. I am a soul-minded spiritual entrepreneur, a Christian minister, and a New Testament scholar. Don't let any of that scare you. I support all paths to the divine, and I use tools like chakras, dreams, and intuition to get there. On this podcast, we explore the intersection of business and spirituality. What do I mean by that? Too often, we separate our business selves from our spiritual selves. But in doing that, we don't leverage the full potential of either one. This podcast aims to help you fall in love with your own soul so that you can start living your most fulfilling and successful life. On today's episode, I'll be talking with an executive coach whose goal is to humanize leadership. But first... In every episode, I offer a soul tip around abundance and your spiritual journey. Today's tip is all around something that may feel really woo, but hang in there because I think you'll find it beneficial. It's about connecting to your ancestors. This has been a topic that has been at the top of my mind for the past few months. We all inherit patterns from our ancestors, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as an entrepreneur, I'm willing to bet that you have broken some family patterns in order to set out on your own journey. But if you're like me, there's probably still a few patterns to recognize and to change. I actually believe that we heal and elevate our ancestors while they're on their journey after they've departed this earth. And I know that there are some out there who are your biggest cheerleaders and are willing to help you succeed on your entrepreneurial journey. There's approximately a zillion ways to connect with your ancestors. Let me give you just one. And that is to set up a little space that is dedicated to them. You can put pictures, mementos, and a little tree to represent your family tree and just start to talk to them. Fill them in on your life, your business, and your journey. We don't do this for them to help us succeed. We do this in order to connect. But in that connecting process, you're going to find an ancestor who's really interested in your journey and how you assist in healing others. My guest today is Sharon Richmond. For more than 30 years, Sharon has partnered with C-level executives who want to uplevel their leadership and build companies that they are proud of. Sharon has taught leadership at Stanford Graduate School of Business, where she now helps leaders increase influence, manage conflict, and prepare to build high-performance teams. She's also the host of To Lead as Human, another show on the Miracy FM podcast network. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Thank you, Katie. I'm so happy to be here with you today to talk about this very special topic. I'm so happy you're here because it's been on my mind to have you for so long on the show. So I'm glad all the stars finally aligned and that it's happening. And I'm just curious about that topic for today on connecting with ancestors and if that's anything you have experience with or anything you've done. It's an interesting tip for today because one of the things that I was thinking about before coming on the show today was 
how part of my spirituality is actually augmented by the long history of ancestors in my same faith. And we can talk about that a little bit more. And the other experience I have is I have a lot of friends who are originally from India, and it's very common in their homes to have little altars with offerings to different gods and goddesses. And I have noticed sometimes there are also pictures of their family members. So that's the first thing that came to mind when you were describing the tip. Yeah, I can't wait to hear more about your ancestors. But first, to start us off, can you tell us what word or words you currently use when you're referring to the divine? Yeah, sure. So it actually really, to be honest, depends on the audience with whom I'm speaking. My spirituality is not something I often talk about within the context of my business, but it's something I'm always aware of in the context of my business. So in some environments, I talk about the divine or the universal energy, but I'm comfortable using the words God, Adonai, Shekhinah, which is the Hebrew word for the feminine in God. Any of those words seem to work for me. And like I said, it's not the kind of thing I often talk about in business. So what I might talk about instead is core purpose. What do you feel moved to leave behind? You know, I might use other phrases that help people think about their lasting legacy and or their place in the world and how they see it. Well, you gave us just a little bit of clue to those kind of on the insider track with some of your vocabulary for the divine. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about your religious and your spiritual upbringing, what that looked like for you, and maybe fold in some of those ancestors you mentioned earlier too. Yeah, happy to. So I was raised in, I think, a traditional but reformed Jewish family. And my parents are both from the Northeast. So they grew up in communities where there were lots of other Jewish people. But by the time I was a young child, we had moved to North Carolina, which is where we lived for most of my life. And so not as many Jews in that area in central North Carolina. I always felt a little bit other in that environment. So the the religious identity and the spiritual and cultural traditions that go along with that were things that we talked about at home and kind of to my embarrassment, really when I was quite young, my teachers would often ask my mother to come in and talk about Jewish holidays or prepare Jewish foods or talk about traditions. And it just was one of those like very awkward things as a child to have that kind of pointed out as something that was just unique to me in our class. And it was almost always just me as the only Jewish kid in the class, sometimes in the grade. So it was a mix of something very important to me personally. And I really enjoyed, for example, going to services with my family. And I can't say I loved Sunday school. I mean, I don't know a lot of kids who really do love Sunday school, but I always went. I went regularly. I grew up in a period of time when The traditional rite of passage of a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah was pretty much still limited to boys. And so as a girl growing up in this Jewish family, in this Southern reform environment, it wasn't quite mine in the same way as it belonged to the boys. So I didn't have a bat mitzvah. And so I never really learned to read Torah or anything like that. And those are all really important pieces of participating in the ongoing activities of a living Jewish community. And I'm curious if you know your ancestral story, any pieces of it, how your ancestors ended up in the Northeast, you know, before you migrated to North Carolina. I do. Most of my grandparents were second generation immigrants, and they came almost entirely from Eastern Europe. But my maternal grandfather, my mother's dad, 
actually was growing up in Russia at the time of the Russian Revolution. And we always had the family stories of how he was sent to escape by his mother. He and his siblings who were old enough, and I think he was at the time 12, and he was sent to go swim across the river and just get away, go away, get out of here. And he would tell stories about how he'd traveled around Europe as a young boy, finding Roma communities, otherwise known as gypsy communities, joined a caravan, acted in circus acts with them while he saved up enough money and developed enough skills. Eventually, he stowed away on a boat to South America where there was a sibling, and I think he did find him, but eventually he made his way to New York City and went through the Ellis Island intake area. What I know about my grandmother, his eventual wife, she was born in San Francisco, actually, which is near to where I live and where I've lived for a long time, and she's actually buried out here. She died in childbirth, and so my grandmother really never knew her mother. Yeah, I'm just thinking for that, that your great-grandmother who empowered her son to swim across that river. What a radical act of trust and how scary that must have been for, I mean, for everyone. Yeah. You're fulfilling your ancestors, you know, wildest dreams and how incredibly supportive and proud they must be. I hope so. Yeah, I think it's guaranteed they, they are. I have no doubt. What, what does your spirituality look like these days? When my husband and I married, we decided that we were going to celebrate every Friday night Shabbat in our home. And when our daughter ended up joining our family, we did that. We started at the time she was born. I mean, we had been doing it before that, but we kept that up for most of her young life. And so the family Shabbat dinner, lighting candles, blessing the bread, sipping the wine, you know, was always very important as a place during the week where we could sit together and say, okay, our week of work is done. Let's shift into this different mindset, this different space where we can, for a few moments, feel the peace that comes with a break and the peace that comes with the appreciation and gratitude for having a lineage history. And so, interestingly, what I carried with me was this sense of always being a minority, even though to the outside world I just look like your standard white woman fairly privileged, but I always carried with me that sense of other, that sense of there are places I can't go, there are things I can't do because of. There was a neighborhood in the town I grew up in that, you know, was still at the time in the early 60s, no Jews or blacks were allowed to live in that neighborhood. And it was well known and I had friends that lived over there. And so it was just a very weird feeling. But out in California, it was a whole different world. And I think it may be part of why I was drawn to move out here People are more open and there's a lot more cultural and religious and ethnic diversity. So it was just easier for me to attach into my identity and decide, you know, how I wanted that to be core for me. Also, have always been aware and comfortable with the idea that there are things that happen around us that we do not understand and cannot explain. And so that leads to the part of my spiritual practices that aren't necessarily obvious to people who know me. But I have been a meditator for much of my adult life, in, intermittently sometimes, sometimes more regularly. I've consulted with astrologers and with psychics and with tarot readers and all different kinds of what people might think of as kind of alternative spirituality or maybe even just spiritual games for some people. But for me, I welcome these different perspectives and ways of knowing always is a way for me to help better understand who I am in the world and what is my place in the world and what is my relationship with the 
larger powers or the larger purpose that I think exists. So besides the traditional things, which my family does continue and very much enjoys and values, there are some core tenets and principles that I think guide me in my thinking all the time. And that's maybe the part of my spirituality that is always present at work. I'll give you one example, which is there's a concept in Judaism of tikkun olam, which means repairing the world. And the idea is that whatever you believe to be, if you believe in God at all, and you believe that God helped to create the world in some way, whatever that way was, that the intent was God to create human beings in their image, his or her image, and to instruct two things. One, the world is not complete. And it is our job to help complete it. So tikkun olam, repairing the world, is let's continue helping make this world the world that it should be, according to our principles and practices and beliefs, which has a lot to do with, I think, ethical behavior. The other thing that was really important besides the tikkun olam is what I mentioned about seeing the divine in every person. And I think one of the things I've embraced throughout my life is this belief that there is a spark of the divine in every person. And if I can connect with that, I can come from a place of love as opposed to what drives a lot of human behavior, which is a place of fear. That's amazing. And I can sense the deep roots there. They seem to be very much expressed within your Jewish identity and the concepts themselves might be applicable in different spiritual systems as well, but they're very much grounded in your identity. Yeah. They're definitely grounded in what I learned about my ancestral traditions. And then at a certain point in my adult life, I got really interested in studying some of the alternative texts. So some people may be familiar with the idea of the Mishnah or the Talmud. And these are collections of commentaries over the centuries left behind by rabbis or spiritual teachers to debate and discuss and try to get clear about what the meaning was. We have a tradition in Judaism of grappling with angels. We believe in arguing things out, making sure that everybody gets to have a point of view. You know, people tell a lot of jokes and they say like, oh, in any group of three Jews, you'll have five opinions. Right. And that in a way is a joke, <laughs> but it also in a way is true. It points out that it's so important to look at whatever situation you're in, whatever piece of learning comes to you from multiple perspectives and that you give deeper thought to, well, what could these words mean? What might these words have been intended to mean? And what do these words mean today? I think it's a powerful grounding to recognize that sometimes an argument or a debate is valuable for everyone, that it's worth going through the difficulty of those kinds of conversations to get to a deeper truth. Sharon brings up an important topic here. Lots of Christians are afraid of questioning their own religious texts. And as Sharon points out, this is something that's a right and sometimes even expected in Judaism. If you'll let me go on a little journey through the recent history of biblical studies, I promise I'll keep it short and really interesting. After World War II, many Christian scholars began to realize that they had been reading the Bible in a way that was harmful to Jews. And this prompted a reevaluation of how we look at the Bible in Christian scholarship. For instance, now there's a lot of emphasis on reading the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament as a book that's complete in and of itself, rather than as a precursor to the New Testament. We don't talk as much about Jesus as a replacement of the Hebrew Bible or of old laws, but embedded and in a continuation with them. 
Or when the religious leaders show up in the New Testament, we don't always have to see them as sneaky or as tricky. This really wasn't rocket science. It just took us listening to Jewish neighbors to see that Jesus was, in fact, Jewish all along. Sharon points out that it is okay to wrestle with scripture and even with God. The debates that she describes are healthy and they are ways that humans can find more meaning, not less, in scripture. In the New Testament, Jesus himself shows this often when he debates with religious leaders like scribes and Pharisees. Perhaps they are not always the enemy that many Christians have been taught to believe, but instead they function as healthy debate partners for Jesus and they're often debating the meaning of the Hebrew Bible. For Christian leaders, it's really important to listen to these Jewish interpretations because they give us a model for questioning scripture. I have found in my own journey this to make my relationship to scripture even stronger. I don't want a Bible that is made of glass that will break apart in the middle of a debate. These layer conversations help us find new insights and they help strengthen our relationship, not only to the Bible, but to where the Bible points, which is always to the divine. They help us see that there's no need to be defensive, but instead they help us get very curious. When I was in college, I took classes in both Old and New Testament, just fascinated and had the best professor of all time, a beloved man, Professor Barney Jones, who was truly the most humble, I think the most embodied Christian I've ever met. He was as kind and gentle and caring as he could be. It was just a pleasure to learn with him. And there was so much mutual respect in those classes that it really felt very healthy to me and was really a huge part of my kind of thinking about how do I interact with and relate with people who have different religious traditions, but perhaps share common spiritual perspectives. So that to me is part of the peace of God that I look for in people is where are they grounded? Where are they rooted? Can you tell us whether your early religious or spiritual beliefs have impacted your relationship with money and your relationship with abundance? Yes, I am sure they have. And there's a complexity to this. Anyone who's familiar with sort of stereotypes of Jews in the media and historically in stories will remember that there's a, even, you know, in Shakespeare, there's a characterization of the Jewish characters as somehow the dirty money handlers and that nobody else wanted to have to handle the money. So that was one of the few jobs that was available to the Jewish population. So there's this sense of money has a taint to it. At the same time, very core to the tradition is the belief that whatever you have in your family, whether it's crops or flocks or money, that it's you show your commitment to and respect for the traditions by surrendering, if you will, parts of what you have earned into, you give them as tithe. And I know that's also a concept in Christianity that some churches take more seriously than others. So for example, we don't have dues in our congregation, we have membership commitments. And it is essentially the same as a dues, but we frame it so that we can recognize and decide for ourselves, how much do I put in here? How much do I contribute? into the financial support of our community offerings, our community programs, let's say. So that's one piece of it. But I think the other thing is, I guess I've always been pretty comfortable with the idea of money and getting paid for what I do. So in my own entrepreneurial journey, it wasn't ever really a big challenge for me. I don't 
I mean, I think I read a book called Your Money or Your Life, like when I was in my 20s, which is all about, you know, do you let money guide all your decisions or do you have other values that guide your decisions? And so I think maybe that's another piece of the spiritual practice, because that's a very Zen approach to thinking about assets. So accumulating wealth has never been important to me outside of being able to provide well for my family and to make sure that we can contribute back to the community and take good care of ourselves and anyone who's in need in our family. Yeah. Well, the history of Jewish people, especially in Europe, which is where I'm most familiar and money is super complicated and intertwined with a lot of Christian oppression. And so I love that you have this ease about money now and you work after all you do work with sea level people. And so, you know, you kind of have to be pretty comfortable with money and engaging in it. And so we're going to let you tell us how to do that, how to get that mindset and just switch gears a little bit and talk more about your business and your entrepreneurial journey. Tell us just a little bit about your business and who you serve. Sure. I work with C-level executives, often of smaller, fast-growing companies and also of family-owned businesses and mid-sized companies of different kinds. And what I help them with is building these organizations that they're proud of by thinking through, what kind of leader am I? What do I want to do? How will my leadership be experienced and internalized? Is it going to produce the results that we need and want from our business? So the kinds of things we talk about are purpose, culture, leadership approaches, behavior change. One of the things that's so hard sometimes is by the time you get to be a senior executive, You've been affirmed so many times for doing what you've done in the past, and yet sometimes it doesn't scale well, because the higher up we are in an organization, the more our words are amplified and sometimes distorted. So we have to be so careful and thoughtful about what we say and how we say it in order that we don't create unintended consequences in the business. And I believe, and I think there's a lot of research that shows this, That if you build cultures of accountability and respect, your businesses will be higher performing because all the people that work in them will be thinking like owners and acting like owners and feeling respected and valued and bringing their most creative, best thinking, their kindest self, you know, to their jobs. And when that happens, when employees, for example, treat customers and clients very well, customers and clients love the business. They love the value that the business produces, but they also really care about how they're treated. And so it creates a very virtuous cycle. Tell us a little more about your niche and working with high-level leaders. And I'm curious, do they tend to be business owners or other people within an organization? And kind of what led you to work at this really, really high level? So it depends on the business. A lot of the companies that I work with have taken venture funding. And so they work for themselves, but they also have boards and funders and lots of other stakeholder groups that have put a lot of pressure on them. So Then I also have some other clients that are family business owners, sometimes one, two generations, sometimes four generations. And I think the issues are a little different in those businesses, but very compatible in terms of thinking about the lasting legacy of a business, the lasting value of a business, and the way that the business wants to operate or the way that the owners want the business to operate. So it's pretty much a mix, but I would say the common motivator is They know there's something else they can do better, and they may or may not know what it is, but they really want to have more impact. What led me to work at this level is I was really passionate about how do we help organizations change more effectively. In my opinion, most large organizations succeed despite themselves and not really because of themselves. 
But as I worked with this large-scale org change over one, two decades and got deeper and deeper into what the levers are, I decided that my own way to be of greatest help to the world was to go to the highest leverage point I could, and that was to start with the leaders. And this in part happened when I was, I had built the global center of excellence for change leadership at one of the big tech companies called Cisco Systems. But in the building of that center, what became so clear to me is most of the leaders of large-scale change didn't understand what their roles were. They didn't understand how to be a point of leverage for what they wanted to see happen. And so it was really building off of that insight that I decided that I have a short time on this earth. I only want to spend some of it working. And I want to work in a place with the highest possible leverage. And luckily for me, there are senior executives who find my approach and perspective helpful enough that they are eager to partner up and work together to figure out how can they be better leaders. And it's also, Katie, in addition to their leadership, how to think about the cultures they are building, which is why I emphasize this accountability and respect portion. Sharon's work really is amazing, isn't it? She doesn't specifically identify what she does in her business as deeply spiritual work, but I'd like to offer a bit of my own perspective on this. I do not draw hard lines or really any lines between secular and sacred or spiritual. I think everything that's doing good in the world is deeply spiritual. We don't have to be in a sacred context to do spiritual work. When we are aligned spiritually, or even if we're a little misaligned, we're doing spiritual work no matter where we are, in the boardroom, in our homes, in our conversations, in our causes and activism, in traditional religious settings, and in our businesses. In the creation story in Genesis 1, the refrain is repeated over and over that the world is good. We don't need hard lines to tell us what is secular and what is spiritual. If it exists in the world, it can be spiritual. It always makes me a little bit humorously perplexed when religious parents want to keep their children away from the secular world. And while there's certainly a lot out there to be afraid of, and I'm not suggesting that there's no corruption or no bad intent in the world, it's not secularism that we need to be afraid of, but instead the corruption of our abundant thinking of generosity. The so-called secular world is where we find sex positivity, environmentalism, and people making huge positive impact in the world. And that's what is, to me, really all spiritual. So I wondered if Sharon saw her work as spiritual in the same way that I do. I totally do view it that way. I almost don't ever talk about it that way. But even if you look at my website, you'll see like there's a section about purpose and my vision for the future. And that is what I would like to see. I, I think leadership is so important. And all of us play leadership roles in our lives in different places. So to me, anytime I can influence a leader of whatever to be more thoughtful, to be more intentional, to be, I hope, ethical, certainly moral, you know, that feels to me like success. And I feel like there's a ripple behind me and a ripple that goes on independent of me as each of these leaders take what they find valuable and ripple it out into their world. So I think you're right. What has been the biggest challenge for you in building the business you have now? You know, you mentioned that money mindset has always come pretty easily to you, but what has been a challenge? Well, you know, it's interesting. Earlier in when I first had my own business, I would really worry like, oh my God, I'll probably never have another client. Where will the next piece of business come from? And I learned over time that 
If I just kept going and did the things I needed to do, made the contact with people, did good work, asked for referrals, that there would always be another piece of work. And so I learned to trust, if you will, in the universe to deliver work as needed. And I think the work that I'm supposed to do comes to me. And I'm grateful for that. I'm not passive about it. So I would say the biggest challenge for me is I was really, really uncomfortable with the idea of marketing myself. I never had any problems marketing the company I worked for, promoting the businesses that I supported, but somehow marketing myself felt self-aggrandizing and inappropriately arrogant. And some of that also, I think, is rooted in some religious teachings around be a humble person, don't be a braggadocious person. You don't need to tell people how great you are, show them how great you are. And so that was a big challenge for me. And I really had to look into where were these beliefs coming from and ask myself ultimately the question, well, if I'm going to do my best work, how will people know that I exist if I don't say so? So the way that I worked my way through this literal revulsion for the idea of marketing was to reframe it as, if you don't know I'm here, I can't help you. If I tell you I'm here, you can decide if I'm the right person to help you. And that was a problem. I mean, I think my revenues were really stagnant for five years, possibly, until I really came to grips with that. And I do believe in an abundant universe. I don't think it's like magical, but I think that there is a way in which what I believe and what I put out into the world does come back to me in beneficial ways. So I think since I've grappled with that demon and put it to rest, so to speak, my business is fourfold grown. And it was pretty healthy to begin with. So I'm very grateful about that. Yeah, there's a pretty big positive consequence. And you mentioned you had a little bit of unlearning to do. And I'm curious, how did you go about identifying that and doing the unlearning from a, you know, what could seem like such a minor religious thing, right? To be humble or to not be a braggart, but there was something in there that got tied up with abundance for you. I think that it was a family value to be humble and not to, you know, not to kind of stand out too much. I think there were other things that probably aren't religious in that, that I went to business school and I had no idea what I was going to get into there. And I had no idea the kind of people I would meet. I met people who were operated with such a sense of entitlement. So I think, you know, I was concerned when I saw the level of entitlement that was present among some of, not all of, but some of my classmates and other alums that I've engaged with over the years. It's many decades since I've graduated from business school. And I think that that might have encouraged my thinking that marketing was kind of sleazy and wasn't honest. And one of my most important core values is to tell the truth as best I can. I try really hard not to pull punches when I give feedback. I try really diligently to speak from my heart and be as honest as I can be with people. So. I think that that was some of the unlearning and it was one of the big things that I had to grapple with with my business coach to really untangle where did these beliefs come from and did I still believe them and what if there were another way to look at it? And so all the things that I do as a coach, I was able to receive as a coachee and do my own work to get down to assumptions levels, check them, look for the facts, see what was happening and decide for myself, was there a way? that I could let people know I'm here, that I didn't feel bad about, that I could feel good about. 
And I think that's what I've done so far. And in part, that's why I started the podcast, because I'm really happy sharing other people's stories of how they've grown and what they've done to grow, as I know you are. And uh, it's part of why I write the kinds of things I write and share on LinkedIn, because I want people to just get it, just have it, have it at no cost, take it and run with it. And I feel that generosity takes away any kind of taint that I felt previously about quote unquote marketing. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think operating from that place of abundant generosity speaks really loudly. And you mentioned earlier that when you're working with your clients, you help them be in alignment with their own values. So I'm curious, what does that phrase mean for you? What does it mean for you to be in alignment? That's a great question, Katie. Being in alignment for me is a feeling. I feel aligned when I, my actions are consistent with my beliefs and my values. And I can be fully myself with both the confidence and the humility that come with being a somewhat self-aware person. And withhold, well, I think one of the things for me is withholding judgment, which is tricky to do, but it's essential in a good coach. And especially at the executive level, because my clients may or may not share my values. I mean, I can tell a story of like, there was a time much earlier in my career where I worked with a, it was a very niche investment firm that was very high end. And their values overall were really about wealth creation and wealth accumulation by figuring out things that no one else knew about and taking advantage of it before anyone else could learn about it which is kind of how investment firms make more money than the average retail investor. And I would not say that I shared all their values at all, but the project that we were doing was very clear and very specific. And it was around helping all the support staff in their organization understand how their performance would be evaluated based on a set of values and criteria that in that firm, I think we described it as it's a concierge role. If you're an assistant in this organization, your job is to be a concierge. Mm. So if the trader needs you to go buy a gift for their spouse, you go because their job is to be as alert and aware on their trading machine as possible and undistracted as possible. So like it, not necessarily my values, but the project itself help people understand what's expected so they can be successful. And that's very aligned with my values. Lovely. For you, how does it feel when you're not in alignment? I think I feel disingenuous. I think I'm more distractible. You know, I think it's harder for me to settle in and focus because there's something about the state of alignment feels like the state of flow to me where I know what I'm here for. I know what I'm doing. I know what comes next and I can just dive in and do and feel that sense of alignment. So I think it's when that's missing the opposite of flow feels like distractibility to me. And I think that's maybe one clue. Another clue is that I'm tired and there's no obvious explanation for why I feel so tired. Because it's draining, I think, to be constantly unconsciously trying to figure out how do I make this work in a way that feels true for me and also feels true for my clients. Do you have any tricks for getting yourself back into alignment whenever you're feeling that fatigue or disingenuousness? I have so many tricks. I have this, you guys can't see, but, but Katie can see I have this beautiful piece of green fluorite, which is just an incredible 
grounding crystal, essentially. It's a it's the size of my whole palm. And I can hold I hold it sometimes and just sit quietly. Sometimes I put it on my forehead and just breathe a bit. Again, I use meditation practices. So and one of the things I've learned along the last five, six, eight years maybe is if I don't actively practice self-care, I'm going to be in that state a lot more. And so I have learned how not to have to do everything myself. I've learned how to include others and trust others to help with parts of the business. And that has allowed me to have time for self-care. And so I have now three times during the week that are dedicated to our self-care slots during weekdays. And I try to make use of those. It's a great practice if anyone else hasn't tried it and wants to. I mean, it can be tricky if you don't fully own your own schedule, but I still think it can be done that we all need time to unplug and replenish ourselves. And in such a giving profession, if I don't have something to give, I'm not of much value at all. So I almost feel it's essential to my work, that practice. That's amazing. And before we wrap up, do you have any advice or wisdom you'd like to share with the listeners? Any advice or wisdom? I mean, you have to take the time to understand what you care about leaving as a legacy. And even if you're a young person in your 30s or 20s, you still may have some sense of it. It's not like you need to worry about the end of days or anything. But, you know, take the time to figure out what matters to you or what will matter to you. There's a meditation that I like to do where you go for a long celestial journey to visit with your wiser elder self many years in the future. And, and just having that meditation visualization conversation with your wiser elder self is so clarifying for what you really care about, what matters most to you. And so that's something that I would recommend people try if they haven't ever experienced it. If you know what your own purpose is, then you can structure the rest of what you do to be in support of it, or at least directionally correct. I wouldn't pretend to advise people to say, I'm not a fan of like, follow your bliss. I think sometimes our bliss is good for enjoyment, but maybe not for professional life. But whatever you do choose for your professional life, it should be something that contributes to directionally to what you care about, whatever that is. Yeah, I love the directionally. That that really speaks well. Um, just keep on going in the correct direction and then we'll, we'll get to where we're supposed to be. Um, this is so amazing, Sharon. Thank you so much for being here. And what's the best way for people to find you? Well, I'm always present, pretty much always present on LinkedIn, and that's a great place to reach out and connect. So it's actually Sharon Lebovitz, Richmond, L-E-B-O-V-I-T-Z, Richmond, if you're looking for me, or you guys can put it in the show notes as well. And also, I have a pretty decent website, which now has a lot of my past blogs posted on it and all the podcast episodes that we've done so far. And that's leadinglarge.com, L-E-A-D-I-N-G large.com. So definitely reach out if you want to debate about anything I've said, or if you want to chat further about any of these thoughts and ideas. Awesome. We'll make sure people get to you. Thank you so much, Katie, for inviting me onto the show. It was a really interesting conversation and, you know, helped me to explore some things that I don't often talk about. So I do really appreciate it. Thanks for being so willing to be here and to be open and vulnerable with this really important part of yourself.
I'm Kate Valentine, and you've been listening to Soul Savvy Business. Soul Savvy Business is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which includes shows such as Just Between Coaches and Once Upon a Business. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. I wrote this episode with Melissa Deal. Melissa assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was by Post Office Sound. To make sure you don't miss great episodes coming up on Soul Savvy Business, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please give us a star review. It is the best way to help us get these ideas out to more people. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.